We're going to be in Genesis chapter 1 this morning. I don't usually do this, uh, but I want to let you know that last night I woke up at midnight. It was, you're awake, kind of wake up. Uh, I was awake till 3 o'clock, began it in prayer and just concentrating on who the Lord is. The song that we just sang fit perfectly. Uh, I recognize the seriousness and the gravity of this morning's message. And and it wasn't a fear, but it was just a realization of the seriousness of this morning's message. message. We're going to talk about God and who he is and some of the names that he has. Um, Went back to sleep 3 o'clock, woke up at 6 o'clock. And it was over. I was done. Um, And so I hope this morning that you're able to worship the one that we just sang about. Last week we began a journey to remind us what happened in the beginning, Genesis. Specifically, chapters 1 through 11. Um, We started by seeing what Jesus thought and taught about this portion of God's revelation. Uh, We saw him reference it at least eight times. I don't have the time to read each one of them, but I want to remind us of a couple of two or three. In Matthew 19, when the Pharisees were trying to trick him concerning divorce and pit him against Moses, Jesus said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And then he said, Genesis, and then he quoted Genesis 2.24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And he said some other things. He referenced in the beginning of God creating a real Adam, God creating a real Eve, uh, and them two being together that they were male and female as well. In Matthew 24, he compares his second coming to the times of Noah, which would be Genesis chapter 6, referencing it as a literal event, a real flood that happened. In Matthew 23, he referenced Cain killing his brother Abel from Genesis chapter 4, meaning Adam and Eve were very real people who had a very real son, Abel, who was murdered by his brother, the first murder that's recorded in Scripture. Um, as well, in, I'll finish with this one, in Mark 13, when speaking of the tribulation, Jesus said, In those days there will be such tribulation as, as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. So Jesus believed in a very literal Genesis 1 through 11, and he referenced it several times during his uh, earthly ministry. But we mentioned this, after all he would believe in it, of course, he was there. Uh, We read in Colossians last week, Colossians chapter 1, that he was the, if you will, he was the God agent who created, um, the Son was. Uh, We also mentioned last week that we were thankful for all of the God-honoring ministries that research and work and present a biblical creation. It's, It's just great to have those kinds of people that God has gifted the church with. Um, But we also read in Hebrews 11, verse 3, uh, which says this, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Um, We're we're, uh, thankful for Creation Science Museum. We're thankful for the Creation Research Institute. I think it's out of Dallas and other ministries and people that have given their life to this aspect of, of proving that secular science is wrong, that God is, and that he's a reward of those who diligently seek him, that he did create. We're thankful for them, but at the same time, we don't believe it because of them. Hebrews 11 verse 3 says that we believe by faith that God created uh, the world. 
Why is it necessary to believe that by faith? If you have such ministries as Creation Science Museum, Creation Research, Ken Ham, Dwayne Gish, and people like that. Well, let's begin to answer that by reading today's text. And it's really short. It's just one verse. Uh, It was going to be four words, but we're going to do all ten words of it. It's Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, if you want to follow along, or maybe you've even memorized it before. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the question that I have for us is, who wrote this? Who was there? Who wrote, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth? Who saw that? Who saw that God said on day one, this will happen, day two, this will happen? We're going to talk about that next week. Who was there? Adam wasn't there yet. He doesn't come into view until the sixth day of creation. Moses, who wrote Genesis through Deuteronomy, the Talmud in Hebrew, the Pentateuch is what we know it. He wasn't there. He doesn't come into the picture for another 2,500 years. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God must have told Moses to write these words. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So while we have a creation science museum and people that give their life to that sort of ministry, and we're very thankful for it, and they do a tremendous service to us, as well as lifting up the light of God's creation, we don't believe that it exists because of them. We believe by faith because there wasn't anybody that was there other than God. That would make at least some portion of these early pages of Scripture Something along the lines, it's, re, it's referred to as dictation. Dictation. Even if Adam would have started writing as soon as he was created, he wasn't on the scene yet. There are other methods of biblical inspiration as well, and I just want to mention these. There are books that are written as history, like First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, or Acts that traces the history of the, of the, of the dispersion of the church. Leaders, excuse me, letters were written and addressed to local churches and and the problems that they have. That would be inspiration as well by the hand of Peter, the hand of Paul, Um, the 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, just to give you a few examples. Prophetic portions of Scripture like Daniel and Revelation, portions of the major and minor prophets, things that were predicted to happen and many of them did, things that are still predicted to happen and they will. We have a confidence in that and so on. So much so that Peter could write this inspired word, knowing this, first of all, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 20, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. As well as 2 Timothy 3.16, we know it, all Scripture is given by inspiration, it's breathed out by God. The biblical writers, someone wrote, Their personal expressions were guided by and protected under the superintendence of the Holy Spirit. The final product is the authoritative Word of God. So when we read, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, Moses wrote exactly what the Spirit of God intended for him to write. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Even though Moses wasn't there. God was there. The Holy Spirit was there. What I find really interesting, even God-like in Genesis 1 verse 1, is that God begins his communication to man by declaring his existence. 
He declares his existence. In these opening words, he doesn't introduce himself. He doesn't justify his existence. He doesn't seek to defend himself to the scoffers. He doesn't describe who he is and what he's like. He does some of that in time. Some, I say, because we we have a, a finite mind and we can't wrap our minds around who everything that God is, um, but he gives us some of that. He simply declares himself. He is infinite. He's immeasurable. We're finite. We are limited. We can't even understand, we can't even understand not having time, let alone a God who functions outside of time as well as inside of time. That's the one who wrote in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He was already the I am in the beginning. And Moses is attributed to writing the first five books of the Bible. And interestingly, he writes Psalm 90 also. And I wanted to quote a verse from Psalm 90 where he says this. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You are El And we're going to learn about that. You're the mighty one from everlasting to everlasting. I can't wrap my mind around what is everlasting. I live. I'm going to die. I'm told about an eternity. But for me to wrap my mind around I'm always going to exist with God by his grace because of Jesus Christ for eternity, I can't understand that. Or that God existed always before time even was. I can't understand that. But that's the God that we worship. He's otherly. That's the word holy. He's otherly. Before the mountains were brought forth, or you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. In the beginning, God. It reminds me of when God and Moses were talking. God and Moses were talking like God and Adam and Eve would talk and commune as well. And God spoke to others at different times in Scripture. Um, God and Moses were talking, and it says in Exodus chapter 3, then Mo- this is a genuine question, I think. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel, and they say to me, they say, and, and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. He was the I am who I am before Genesis 1-1. He's going to be the I am who I am after the tribulation period when, when God ushers in eternity future as well. And he said to them, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Moreover, God said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, the Lord God of your fathers, this word for God is Yahweh, the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is my memorial to all generations. Just the name of God should grip our attention. Just his name It reminds me of Jesus also. They knew exactly what he was doing in John's gospel when he declares himself the great I am. Seven different times he says, I'm the bread of life. I'm the light of the world. I'm the door of the sheep. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the resurrection and the life. I'm the way and the truth and the life and the true vine. The Jews of Jesus' day knew what he was saying when he said, I'm the great I am. And And to Moses, God said, you tell them I am 
that I am. That's who sent me. Genesis 1.1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I want us to just pause for a second and realize what's going on here. God has revealed himself. He's chosen to reveal himself to mankind. He didn't have to do that. He revealed himself to you and I because we have scripture that says in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. He revealed himself to all of the Jews as well. He's revealing himself. He reveals himself by his creation. He reveals himself by his names. The names he uses to express himself or the names that others use about him to express something that's happened to them that God has done as well. The declaration of truth is this. God created the heavens and the earth. We learn in the Bible, and I, and I want to speak just for a second to creation, and then we're going to talk about that next week, but because it's in this verse, I want to speak to it. We learn in the Bible that the creation of the heavens and the earth is enough of an expression of God's purpose that the New Testament, the book of Romans specifically, says that with just that revelation of God's person and power, it's, it's enough to reveal the condition of the heart of mankind. And there are those, the vast majority in our world, some that would be God-friendly but not followers of his, others that are antagonistic towards him that would open a Bible and read, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. They'd close it shut and they wouldn't want to believe anything or read any more about him because they're enemies of God. And may I say that that's who you and I were apart from God's grace. Romans teaches us us that as well. Um, But God, by his grace, reached out and touched us. Romans says that creation itself is enough of an expression of God's person that, the, that, uh, that, that it reveals the condition of man's heart. Listen to this. For what can be known about God is plain to them. It's not fuzzy. It's not cloudy. It's plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. I was a missionary. I appreciate missionaries. I appreciate those who work in translation of the scriptures so that others that don't have the scriptures can have them. But creation all by itself is enough to reveal man's heart. God is kind and gracious and gentle and merciful, and he extends even more truth to us. And for that reason, we work in missionary endeavors and we translate scriptures. But all by itself, creation is enough to condemn man because it reveals who we are all by ourselves. In these things, it says, for the invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse for although they knew God, not in a salvation, I follow Jesus way, but I know who he is. I know something of his nature. I know something of his power. Although they knew God, they didn't honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile or pointless or vain in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. I hope that you realize this morning as a follower of Christ or as someone who's here that isn't but you're interested in learning about the things of God, I hope that you realize that it's because God is working in your heart through the power of the Holy Spirit and through the living word that he's given us. We wouldn't desire that apart from God. 
He's the one who's the agent of that grace. He reveals himself through creation. God has also revealed himself by his names. Names and titles that reveal insight into his person, his character, his activity. We see his invisible attributes, his eternal power that Romans 1 talks about, and divine nature in in the names that he uses. The first name that he uses for himself in Genesis 1-1 is Elohim. Elohim. Now the interesting thing about this word is that it's already plural. He begins scripture by presenting himself as one God and yet plural. Three people, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, Elohim, creator, mighty, and strong. From the Bible's first sentence, the fourth word, the first reference to God, he refers to himself as plural. And I quote, the superlative, excellent, unmatched, incomparable nature of God and his power is evident as God, Elohim, speaks the world into existence. He speaks and it happens. That's how powerful he is. All he did was speak and it happened. Another word that's used to reveal who God is is the word El or Eloa. It's the singular of the plural Elohim. It means mighty or strong or prominent. El is associated with other qualities as well about who God is and some of the characteristics and attributes that he has. But it always has that root idea, that foundational idea of his might. God is a mighty God. Deuteronomy chapter 5, the third commandment says this. You shall not make for yourselves a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on earth beneath, that's the creation he did, or that's in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. This is what he says. For I, Jehovah, your Elohim, am a jealous El. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Listen to Nehemiah chapter 9 to see what some of those other qualities that go along with his greatness are. They, he was praying about the history of their nation, and he says, But the, our fathers uh, acted presumptuously, stiffened their neck, didn't obey your commandments. They refused to obey, were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. Excuse me, among them. But they stiffened their necks and appointed a leader to return to slavery in Egypt. But you are a God, an El, an Eloah. You are a God ready to forgive. So these are some of those other qualities that go along with that might. Ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. You did not forsake them. Listen to this. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf, And said, this is your Elohim, this is your God who brought you out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies, you in your great mercy, another quality that goes along with his might, you in your great mercy did not forsake them in the wilderness. Always with the idea of El or Eloah comes the idea of God and his might. Sometimes it's plural, referring to God as one. Sometimes it's in, excuse me, it's singular, referring to God as one. Sometimes it's a plural, giving us the insight that he's triune. Another word and one that's well known for God is Jehovah or Yahweh. 
Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. We're going to read that in a minute. Um, this, this, uh, this is a, a word that's used for God that speaks strictly to the proper name of God. It's translated in your English Bible. You've seen it, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Sometimes you'll see the word capital L, little O, little R, little D. That's another word. The revelation of the name of Yahweh or Jehovah interchangeable. The revelation of the name is given to Moses in Exodus chapter 3. You remember the story. God said to Moses, say to this people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. Thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. This name specifies a closeness and a nearness and a presence. I can wake up at midnight You can wake up at midnight on another continent somewhere else in the world and we can call upon the Lord because he is near. He's always near. He's always close. If I wake up and I'm troubled, I can cry out to God. If I wake up and I'm worshiping him, he receives my worship of that. He doesn't sleep. He doesn't slumber. He's always there. He's always got an ear turned towards his children. He's close. He's present. There's a nearness. I hope that causes you to worship Yahweh, Jehovah, is present. He's accessible. He's near to those who call on him for deliverance, for forgiveness, for guidance. Listen to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, Jehovah, our God, Elohim, plural, the Lord Yahweh is one. The Lord, you shall love the Lord Jehovah, your God Elohim, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. He takes his names pretty seriously. And the fourth word in the Bible is a, is a name for the word of God. And it is enough to cause us to bow down and worship him. And even more than that, Jesus' name is just right up in there. The name above all names. Another word. No, I want to give another example. That would be Abram who would become Abraham in time. He was rescuing, he had rescued his nephew Lot. You remember the story, likely this isn't when God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, this is before, this is Genesis 14, he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19. Um, He battled and defeated the king of Sodom and the kings of the surrounding areas Um, and Melchizedek, the king of Salem, the priest of God most high, came out to meet Abram. And this is what it says in Genesis 14, verse 19. He blessed him, Melchizedek blessed Abraham. He blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, El, singular, all-inclusive. Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, El, who has delivered your enemies into your hands." The king of Sodom didn't die in this battle, and this is what he did. He really, he really exemplifies some pretty good leadership qualities. The king of Sodom, who had been defeated, said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. Go ahead and take all of the stuff that you should have because you won this battle, but allow me to have the people that, that are present, and he was taking care of his people. And this is what Abraham said to him. I have lifted my hand to Jehovah, El, the God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. 
that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that's yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. He knew God is my fortress and strength, that God is able to give me anything and everything that he wants that I have or that I need, or sometimes that I come to him as my father and say, Heavenly Father, would you grant this? And sometimes in his kindness and benevolence, he does that. Abraham recognized the Lord is my strength, he's my fortress. And that was in a battle. But I want you to recognize, every single one of us here needs to recognize, the Lord is our fortress and strength. It isn't my family is my fortress and strength, love my family. It isn't my wife is my fortress and strength, love my wife. The Lord is my fortress and strength, a very present help in trouble. It's God who is our, our presence and our, our, our fortress and our strength. Not stuff, not riches, not a perfect situation, not even the people we love, but God is our fortress and strength. I can get excited about this. <laughs> Another... Actually, I had to pare it way down. (laughs) A normal Sunday is five pages. I got ten, okay? (laughs) Another word that's used for the Lord is Adonai. Adonai would be the capital L, small O-R-D that you find in your Bible. Sometimes there are those who think that that is used often because they were afraid to mention the word Jehovah. They had such fear of God. And his name. And we're going to look at a little example of that in just a minute. Adonai would be a word that means the sovereign one, the controller, the Lord, the master. It can be used, it's a word that is used in Scripture both of God and of man. And they were able to use it without confusion. For example, Saul was the king of Egypt, of Egypt. Saul was the king of Israel, and David referred to him as his Adonai, not as his God, but as his Lord, small l, because he recognized the position of authority that he had. And so that was okay as well. Genesis chapter 15 says this, After these things, the word of the Lord, Jehovah, came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield, your reward shall be very great, But Abram said, O Lord, Adonai, Jehovah, O Lord God, Adonai, and then Jehovah, um, what will you give me for I continue childless? So Adonai can mean Lord or master or owner. And I don't have time to go through all of these, but let me just read them. El Shaddai is used meaning God Almighty. Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. Jehovah Rapha, the Lord who heals, Jehovah Nisi, the Lord our banner. Some of these, are my tongue just doesn't do what some of these things do. Jehovah Makdesh, the Lord who sanctifies, who makes holy. Jehovah Shalom, the Lord our peace. Jehovah Elohim, the Lord God. Jehovah Titsknu, the Lord our righteousness. Jehovah Rohi, the Lord our shepherd. Yahweh, Jehovah Shammaha, the Lord is there. Jehovah Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts. El Elyon, the Most High. El Roi, God who sees. Elohim, everlasting. Elo, El Olam, everlasting God. El Gibor, the mighty God. David was so awestruck at God and who he is and the names that he had that he would write this in Psalm 138. I bow down toward your holy temple. Give thanks to your name for your steadfast love. 
love and your faithfulness. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. God takes his name seriously. He takes it so seriously that the fourth commandment is if you mess with my name, it's going to cost you. And how many people do we see messing with God's name? I, there is, I'm not even going to go there and, and say who it is, but there's an actor that just offended me because of the way he used God's name, and it was Jesus at the time. And now when I, watch, when I see him on a, on a movie, I'll get up and leave. I'll leave. I won't watch the TV. It was, it was so offensive. If it's offensive to me, how much more God? I'll golf with somebody in about the fourth or fifth hole. You know, you kind of get to know people as you're getting to know them. Yet you haven't known them before. And they'll say, what do you do for a living? Well, I'm a preacher. Oh, I'm sorry about all the things that I said. Well, you don't need to be sorry to me. You're offending God. It seems to me, and I hope, that after considering God and his names the names that he chooses to use to express truth about himself makes a difference in how we use Jesus' name. We're told in John, whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. We are coming to Jehovah God, the Mighty One, in the name of of Jesus it is so much more than in Jesus name I pray and Josh does this and my mother-in-law did this and other ones that I had seen also there are a lot of people that I know that don't even pray in Jesus name they're coming to God in Jesus name that's sufficient in and of itself is it wrong to say in Jesus name no unless it's empty and if it's empty we've got to be kind of careful there don't we Because we're violating the very thing that we're not supposed to violate. I hope that just considering who God is helps us recognize when I come to God in prayer and I'm praying in Jesus' name, it isn't a Christmas list. That's ridiculous. It's coming to Jehovah God, Creator God, the Mighty One, the one who has the power of life and death in His hand. We're coming into His presence in Jesus' name. The thing about Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Think about this. It's demonstrating that God is knowable. Knowable. He has chosen to come to us, cause Moses to write it, the very thing that the Spirit of God desired, because he is knowable. He didn't have to do that. He's knowable through his names, What they say, what they show us, he's knowable through his creation. Genesis 1.1 begins the story of God communing with mankind. The only thing created in his image on the sixth day of creation. He walked in the garden with Adam and they talked. They communed. I read Hebrews 1. At the beginning of this service as well, he's given us his word. He's given us his Holy Spirit. His spirit continues to work. He communicates. He says, come unto me, you that are burdened and heavy laden. Do you have sin that you're thinking, what can I do to be freed from my sin? I've violated God. I knew I was violating God. 
God's grace is sufficient. Jesus is the name, the only name given among men whereby we must be saved. The only name. Not clean up my act. It's Jesus and your blood is absolutely sufficient because he's got the name that is above every other name. In that communication, God says, Deuteronomy chapter 5, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes the Hashem, the name, in vain. Just the name of God is holy. In the Old Testament, there were scribes. There were present in the New Testament. I did a little bit of search. They still have scribes today. In the Old Testament, there were scribes, and they had among their duties the responsibility of copying, especially the first five books of the Old Testament. It was their job. It was their task. I can sit at a computer, and my fingers fly. They didn't have that capacity. They had animal skin and ink and a quill, and it was their job to copy God's word. Scribes were tasked with that responsibility on parchments, later scrolls, no computers, no typewriters, no big pens, uh, no texting. Um, It was tedious, laborious work. I was taught in Bible college, and that was a long time ago. I was taught in Bible college when scribes would come to the name of God, they would be writing at their desk, they would stop, they would put their quill down, They would stand up, they would go to a sink or a tub, and we're going to see a a picture in a second. They would wash their hands ceremoniously. They would come back, sit down, pick up either that quill or a different one. The stories differ. They would write the name God. They would put the quill down. They would get up. They would go back, wash their hands ceremoniously. They would come and they would sit down and they would continue their work. That's one of the stories of how scribes would would treat the name of God. They were so concerned. A tedious work. Others say, before writing the name of God, the scribe must reverently wipe his pen and say, I am writing the name of God for the holiness of his name. One man writes, there are arguments as to what must take place at the time of the writing. I've heard the following arguments for the last 40 years, he writes. When a scribe is preparing to write the name of God... He will go to the mikvah. Logan, go ahead and put that up here. The mikvah was a ceremonial pool, and they're sprinkled all around Israel. And he would be writing the name, excuse me, he would be writing scripture. He would come to the name of God, recognize the holiness of it, put his quill down, get up, and go and wash himself completely in this mikvah ceremoniously. Really is a picture of baptism as well. He would come back. He would pick up, sit down, pick up his quill, write the name of God, put it down, get up, go back, and wash himself again. They had created laws, and this got to be a problem for them. They had created laws so that they wouldn't violate the name of God. Motive probably was pretty good. But then all of a sudden, you fast forward to Jesus' time, and they were so confused in all the laws that they had created that they were more religious in their aspect than they were in the relationship that they had. 
ceremoniously cleanse himself, come back to his desk, choose a new quill, and write the name of God. Think about that just for a second, this man writes. The word L-O-R-D, Jehovah, is used 1,606 times in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, and there are times when where Hashem, or the name, is used almost 100 times on one sheet. It takes a week to write a sheet. Another uh, another way the scribes uh, say, say they, they would write would be the name is that they would start the day as they usually do. They would go to the mikvah. They would ceremonially wash themselves. Uh, and every time that they were to write the name God, they would leave it blank. And then the next day, they would go to the ceremonial pool. They would wash themselves. The first thing that they did is they would write all of the names of God that they had missed or that they had left blank. And in that way, they were, they were honoring or exalting the name of God. Think about that with this verse, this verse alone. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. That's a whole day. That's a day. And this guy was kind of funny because he said these guys probably came out of that tub wrinkled they had to wash themselves so many times. When a scribe is writing the Torah, he must prepare himself mentally to sanctify the name God. They even created extra laws, like I mentioned. It's a whole system. Uh, Don't have time for it. I can send it to you if you'd like to read about it. There were secondary laws, so they wouldn't violate the primary law. Once he started writing the name, he must not stop until it's finished. And if he makes a mistake, he may not change what he has written. So what they would do is they would take that sheet or that parchment, and they would put it in a special place in the synagogue, never to be used, never to be destroyed, Because it was holy, because it contained the name God. The most common thing, though, that he may do is to take the entire sheet uh, to a storage area, the synagogue. Uh, If he makes this mistake near the end of the sheet, he'll have he'll lose he will have he will have lost a week's worth. They're really careful about this. Novice scribes always started writing with the book of Esther because the book of Esther doesn't contain the name God, and that way they can get a little bit of practice in what they were doing. They went to extremes, didn't they? Even beyond what was required. And we got to be really careful, and we can learn from these guys because we can do that. We can go to extremes beyond what were required. I mean, have you ever read some of the rules? Like, don't. Mixed bathe, mixed bathe. What are you talking about? Mixed bathe. They're talking about swimming. We're not supposed to swim because we're supposed to be modest. Modest is good. Mixed bathe probably isn't addressed in Scripture. And so we create these secondary rules in order to not violate God. And that's a good thing that we don't violate God, but we've got to be really careful that we don't become so religious that we're not relationship minded anymore. They went to extremes. What we know is this in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He is knowable. And if you're here this morning and you know him, I'm guessing that what we have sung and the scriptures that we have read have caused you to worship the God who created you. And if you're here this morning and you don't know him, I want you to know that he is knowable. God who created you knows your name, sent his son to die on the cross for you that you might enter into relationship with him. Not that religious junk, but relationship with him. I've got to be careful. 
But that relationship with him, he's knowable through his creation. He's knowable through his names. Jesus being the only name given among men whereby we must be saved. There is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. I hope this has caused you to worship your God this morning. Jehovah and Adonai and Elohim, Eloah, El Shaddai, all of the names that you've chosen to communicate something about who you are tell us that you are knowable. We understand we have a sin problem. We recognize from Romans 3 that all by ourselves we're not going to seek you out, but we are so thankful for your Holy Spirit and His ministry and the living Word and its ministry in our lives that has drawn us to yourself and brought redemption because we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus, we thank you that you were willing. We thank you that you created. We thank you that you will be tagged as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And it is our choice to worship you now because you've redeemed us. You've cleaned up that sin problem even though we're still in the process. Father, I pray for the one who might be here this morning that would desire to worship you the way that we are Help them understand that it isn't because of anything we've done, but it's everything that you've done. You're knowable. You sent your son to die on the cross. It is sufficient. It is finished. May they believe on the Lord Jesus Christ today. We worship you. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.